In a world where we experience economic turmoil, grief, poverty, and crime, we are not consumed by the flames, but rather we use those flames to light our path toward a brighter future. Through our faith, we learn to receive the strength and resilience we need to survive and thrive in the midst of life's greatest challenges. So let us be like the fire that burns hot and bright, never letting the world's darkness extinguish our inner flame. Let us draw upon the unshakable resilience that comes from Jesus alone and emerge from the trials of life stronger and more resilient than ever before. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If it goes over three seconds, it starts getting weird. Okay, thank you for the warm welcome. One of the most important things to know about me is that I'm one of five boys, no sisters growing up. I need counseling. But there were, there were literally, the, the amount of testosterone was palpable. Both my parents were college athletes. They were both educators. It was the kind of environment where if you brought an A minus home, people are like, that's bad performance, right? So it was very intense and competitive. And you can imagine what meals were like, right? It was clamoring for the last bite of food. My wife still is like, how do you eat so fast? You're in your 40s, right? Like old habits die young. But you can imagine at the counter that was about from this speaker to that speaker growing up, my mom would line us up from the oldest. There's only nine years between the oldest and the youngest. From the oldest, like a stair stepper, all the way down to the fifth one, I was the fourth, the closest to the end. Every one of my brothers has a kind, a kind of a superpower, honestly. My older brother is like a genius. The next one was destined to be a finance guy and make lots of money. The other one was a professional athlete, blah, 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 blah. I didn't exactly have a superpower. Well, that's not true. If I had a superpower, it was asking endless amounts of questions. And anybody with a child that's like that, God bless you, right? And it just so happened that my questions would just rush at me at mealtime. So it was a daily experience for us before we were in high school and had practices at night and youth group and stuff. But when we were younger and we all lined up together, it was a daily experience for me to interrupt the meal at least 326 and a half times. Right? It was like they just came. The most random questions about, why do we have, mom, why do we have brown grout and white tile? You remember brown grout from the 80s? Right, right, right. Where did we come up with that idea? Right? Brown grout. And, 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 and when I was younger, they were immature and simple. Like, why do we have this, um, why do we have this wallpaper in this room, but it's different in, in that room? And why did we get a white van and not a, a blue van? And on and on. And as I got older, they matured to things like, why did we never have any sisters? And how come we, you batted a thousand, mom, with getting boys, and, right? And then it matured to like, when I was a teenager, it was things like, if we're spinning, mom, if we're spinning 30,000 miles around the, on the axis of the earth, why are we not flying off? Well, it's gravity, right? What is gravity, mom? And she was just spent with me. And I remember her saying, Ryan, it's not 
that it's, you're, it's that really the, the concern is not that there's a stupid question. I'm like, I know my teachers tell me the same thing, right? She said, it's that it makes me feel so stupid not knowing your answers. To which one of my brothers from across the, across the hall would say something like, there's not stupid questions, but there might be stupid people, right? And another brother would chirp in, and there might be a stupid number of questions, Things have literally not changed one bit. The nature of the questions have changed, but the amount of questions, I can't turn the question factory off. So when I moved to Washington to do church planting and innovative ministry and stuff, I led with questions. Some people show up and, you know, they sort of parachute drop into a city or a county to do church planting. And it's like they got their vision, they got their plan, they got their core team, and they got the, they got the five-year plan. I just showed up with a bunch of questions. Probably not the best strategy, but that's just the way it worked. And I remember being in a Woods coffee shop the first month that I was in Whatcom County over five years ago. And that's, that's of course, I, I thought it was this really like craft, like, you know, like cute, quaint little coffee shop. And then you've been here for like two months and you realize there's 40 of them. But nonetheless, I was in this cool, the cool one on Bakerview and a young woman came in that had to be between 18 and 25. I learned that later. And I asked her, you know, do you mind if we have, do you mind if we um, chat for a little bit, totally interrupting her studies? She was a Whatcom student. She said, sure. What's it about? And I said, religion. She's like, and I gave myself some like really cool title like freelance, anthro freelance anthropologist or something like that, right? Because if you use the P word pastor, nobody wants to talk to you, right? So you, you learn to use code words like I'm a innovative minister, ecumenical minister, or like I'm a sociologist on sabbatical doing research, which are all not not true, right? <laughs> or not untrue, I should say. Anyhow, we struck up a great conversation. On my ride home, I'm thinking... There's something to these questions. I learned so much about what it means to be a young person in Whatcom County. So I did it the next day, literally the next day. Another young person who was a student at Western came in. I didn't know that until after I met them, obviously. And I said, hey, do you mind if we have a conversation? She said, sure, what about? And I said, religion. I'm, I'm a freelance anthropologist. She's like, okay, cool. So we sat down, had this conversation. I'm driving home thinking, oh my gosh. Like, I'm so... I have so much insight from these few conversations. So in a totally nerdy way, I created a questionnaire and proceeded to conduct a hundred, a hundred and almost one interviews over six months with young people between the age of 18 and 25. All questions, all about religion, all about what it means to be a person of faith, all about adhering to a tradition and on and on and on. And you might be wondering, why 101? Well, I only got partly the way through the second one, or excuse me, the, hundred, the first one after 100, because I asked 100 people in a row, 100 young adults in a row, would you be willing to have a conversation with me about religious adherence or religious faithfulness or religious conviction? And every single one but one said, sure. So don't, don't tell me, don't tell me there's a whole lost generation that's not interested in questions about ultimate meaning and religion and faith and theology and all these things that ultimately matter because almost a thousand percent, I batted on this, a hundred percent of the time, 100 out of 101 young adults to a perfect stranger were like, sure, let's talk. Some of those interviews were two 
hours. Let me tell you one of my findings that just blew my mind. Almost everyone, a supermajority, was in the 90% to the question, in your perception, do religious communities positively impact the biggest struggles, the biggest concerns of our day? No. Now, right down the middle, almost 50 and 50, I think it was something like 48 and 53, were religious, self, self-confirmed religious folks, and the other ones were not, right? So it was almost half and half. But almost 100% of everybody said to the question, does the religious community or do religions positively influence the biggest concerns of the day? And almost everyone said no. I could not believe. That makes complete sense for someone that has no concern for religion at all or for God at all, right? Well, of course not. But 50 people of those interviews actually committed to their life to a religious tradition and had faith and publicly expressed that faith. And to the question, does your faith influence your biggest concerns? And the answer is no. Like, then what are you doing? What are you spending your time doing? And then I met Catherine. I can't remember what number interview she was, but her question has literally been echoing in my head for five years since I had that interview. And to that question, she said no. She said religious people and religious, religious communities don't positively affect the biggest, pressing, most daunting questions of our day. And I said, of course, as one who always asks questions, I gotta know why. And she said this, and you'll see the quote. She said, religious people try so hard to get high that they never see life from below. She said, she literally said, and, and then I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a little bit of interpretive work because the conversation continued. They work, religious people get, work so hard to get high that they never experience or see life from below. In other words, People of faith, from her perspective, do everything to like send their prayers to heaven, elevate their worship on high, talk to a God that's out there, like wait and be steadfastly wait and hope for a life that's, that's by and by and in the sky and pearly gates. And the entire time, there's a life of brokenness and trauma and pain and questions and struggle. And they're all in the sky and it, life happens on the ground. That's why religion doesn't help. Because it removes us from the day-to-day existence of this world. You can see why for a minister, pastor, freelance, anthropologist, why that's been bouncing around. Now, really quick, that question, we're gonna hold that question because it's gonna help us through for the next 30 minutes. But before we move on, I'm gonna give you a little roadmap. I'm a guy, I like maps. So I'm gonna give you a little roadmap so you sort of know where we're going and then I got a promise for you and then I, and I, but I have to make an admission. Here's your roadmap. We're gonna dive into Daniel 5. It's not a series on Daniel technically, but we are gleaning from Daniel wisdom on how to be resilient. You guys are aware of that. Okay, so we're gonna dive into Daniel 5. We're gonna, we're gonna pull out a couple, real, some nuggets there that are, that are a little dissetting, a little challenging to us. Okay, two to be precise. And then we're gonna take those two nuggets and we're gonna look at a story that we're all really familiar with from Luke 15, the prodigal son. 
And from that, I'm gonna use a story of a friend of a friend named Miguel. And he's gonna help us, know, he's gonna help us see why that matters. And then here's my promise. At the end, I'm gonna circle back around to Daniel and it's gonna help us make sense about what Daniel does in chapter five. Now, why is that a promise? That's a promise because I'm gonna be pushing time here and if I don't get to that part, the, the rest of it kind of unravels. So if I don't get to coming back to Daniel at the end, somebody like throw something at me. Not like, not very hard, but throw it like, so I have to dodge. Okay, yeah, water bottle, perfect. I kn you knew you came for a reason and it's for that water bottle to throw at me. I, we're getting back to Daniel at the end. Now. There's your map. Here's an admission. I'm asking you to do something that's really uncomfortable, okay? I'm asking you to not make Catherine's concern true. In other words, I'm asking for what, what's about to happen up here, this sermon, this proclamation of the word of God, this communication, this engagement, this part of our worship, corporate worship gathering, I'm asking you, okay, I'm gonna, this will make sense in the end, I'm asking you to not put it away in, a in your heavenly file cabinet of truths that we kind of can just pull out and flip through when it's convenient on the holidays or, some, or maybe next Saturday, Sunday, night, Sunday morning or something like that. I'm asking you to not judge what I'm saying in light of some other theological podcast that you've lodged into your esoteric existence of ultimate truth. You see, I mean, all of these big fancy words that us pastors use is all that religion that's out there. What I'm asking you to do is take what Catherine said literally. Do religious people not take this world seriously enough to where their faith actually impacts real world problems? Here's my admission. I'm inviting you to prove her wrong today. When we wrestle with what Daniel has to say, I wanna wrestle with it in the flesh. I wanna wrestle with it on the ground. I want it to matter with that grief that you're holding because you have a strained relationship with your daughter or that health problem with your niece or that job that you're afraid you might lose. That, that's the kind of resilient faithfulness that we need. It needs to matter on the ground because forever we've been trying to take the staircase to heaven and you know what? Jesus built the staircase and descended right down to here because it mattered. It's called the incarnation. So here's my invite. Let's talk about why this matters. Incarnate in the flesh to your body and your family and your home and your community. And that all sounds well and good, but it's gonna be a challenge. I'm just telling you up front, got your roadmap, made an admission, you ready to go? Yeah. Daniel 5, here we go. Now, Bob and the, other, the others that have shared um, during this series have done a wonderful job giving you context, okay? If you just have bounced in, you haven't been around the last couple of weeks, the Bible Project will help you a ton, okay? Go look at something about Daniel. If you've been here, you've got a, you're swirling in the context of Daniel 5. You get it. You know Nebuchadnezzar had a rise and a fall and a rise, and there was a redemption story. You know what exile is and what it is to long for home for the Jewish people, for the Hebrews who longed for the, the land that was given to them and promised to them by God. You know all that. That's all in the backdrop, okay? 
When you get to chapter five, there's basically a 30-year gap. Nebuchadnezzar, his reign ends. It's still in a Babylonian empire. There's a, a series of successive emperors or kings, right? And then we get to chapter five. So 30 years, new regime in town. And the, and the king goes by the name Belshazzar. Okay, I'm, I'm, leaving, I'm leaving all the context behind. I could totally geek out for like four hours on it, but I have to trust you know, you're with me. Here we go. Belshazzar throws this party. We're going to read it in a second. But I want you to know that people much smarter than me are pretty much in agreement that when it gets to this point in the Babylon kingdom, the Assyrians are already knocking on the wall, ready to siege, ready to overthrow, ready to conquer. Okay? The, it's, it's like it's in the air, right? The kingdom is about to fall. And then we get and we drop in right here in the midst of a, of, a, of a foundation that's beginning to crumble. There's signs everywhere. The writings on the wall, Belshazzar and all of his noble people know it. Okay, then we drop in first one. However you get there, scroll in or it'll be up here. However, whatever is comfortable, we're going to jump right in. Chapter five, verse one, the book of Daniel. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles. And he drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, his grandfather, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Now I could spend the next half an hour talking about one, one or two of these words that you've probably never used in public. It's not like we walk around every day and say, hey, how's, 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 your, how's your kid's sports team doing? Great. How's your concubine doing? Awesome. Like, it's just not a word we're familiar with. We could unravel this, like the level of debauchery and sinfulness that it would literally make us gag. I'm not going to do that. Let your minds wander. If, actually, don't let your minds wander, right? Just take it for what it is. Like, literally, there are wives here that are okay with there also being concubines here. That's weird. Don't be that kind of wife, okay? <laughs> or that kind of husband. The point being, there's a whole world that is almost untouchable that we're unfamiliar with. And it's gross, and it's risque, and it's it's as bad as you can imagine. But I do want to zero in on one detail that gives us a clue into how aware Belshazzar just was at this point and how bad things were getting. And if, as you just read this inter introduction, you hardly even see it, so I'm going to point it out to you. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet, totally normal. Kings throw banquets. It's the way they show off what they got, right? A great banquet for a thousand of his nobles, this guy's a rich guy. Not only, it's not, a thousand nobles plus wives. I mean, this is a party for thousands and thousands. And these aren't just any old Joes that are happy to get a steak. I mean, you got all the bells and whistles. You got all the entertainment. Thousands upon thousands coming and feasting and celebrating with live music. And here it is. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring out the gold and silver goblets. Kings don't drink in company. So you don't, you don't see it when just, you read about this debauchery and this, the amount of wine that's flowing and you don't realize 
and the king drank with his company. That's outside of protocol. That's too dangerous. Kings that are that powerful and have that much wealth and have that much to risk don't drink when they entertain. It's not normative. It's too risky. As a matter of fact, a king like Belshazzar with that much power and that much disposable wealth would have tens, if not hundreds of bodyguards following him everywhere. You think like today's influencers with like three bodyguards and a nice like all black tinted window SUV is like the epitome of wealth. Think about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of well-trained armed men following you everywhere you went. That's the kind of environment Belshazzar was used to. That's not the kind of person at a banquet that just decides to get drunk. That's not an everyday occurrence. Why then would he be getting drunk this time? is the question. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the end is near. Let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The only explainable reason for Belshazzar to live this loosely in the company of others is that he knows the end is near. Why is that important? That's important because it makes you realize this is just not a celebration. This is not a wedding they're celebrating or celebrating another conquer on, the, on the, uh, you know, the horizon of the empire. No, no, no. This is a wedding, or excuse me, this is a, uh, a party for the sheer purpose of numbing the pain of the inevitable death of the empire. You see how that works? You see, a king would only risk his life if he knows his life is going to end anyways. And sure enough, we learn literally the next day, gone. Which brings up the question. None of us have empires, though we sort of like to think that we have our own little empires occasionally. Remember, I admitted, this is, I want this, I don't want, this is not in the sky, I want this on the ground. My question to you is, what, what is it that we reach to to help us cope with the struggles of everyday life. There's a word for that, it's called numbing. Emperors do it and so do commoners. Presidents do it and so do fathers with four children. What is it, church, that we use to numb? Numbing, of course, is just any, any action that deadens our full awareness and responsiveness to life's hardships. What is it? it? It could, I'm trusting that it's not concubines. I'm, I'm also trusting that you don't have access to the kind of wealth Belshazzar does, so you don't probably have the dancers and the live musics and the thousands of guests every weekend coming to your house to just completely numb yourself of the inevitable death that you're gonna experience tomorrow. But what is it? It might not even be alcohol, though it might. Sometimes it's just so simple. This is one of mine. Are we the kind of church, are we the kind of people that will prove Catherine wrong and look our numbing attempts straight in the eye and say, yep, that's what I use that for? We're seeing that, right? We're seeing numbing to life's hardship as a way of coping. But there's more, there's more. Verse three. 
So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze, iron, wood, and stone. The solo cups are gone. The china has been brought in. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened, not because it was a hand, but because the writing was on the wall. It was closer than he thought. It was pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak, and his knees were knocking (laughs) And that's not a very good translation of the Aramaic. It's so much better than that. Sure, his knees were knocking. It's explicit. His knees were literally shaking like this, right? But it also says his loins were loosened. (laughs) And like 27% of you are like, I get it. (laughs) Right, right? Think about this. His knees were knocking and his... Orifices were relaxed. 54% of you just got it. This guy was so scared, this king, who's tipsy, drunk, breaking all protocol, risking his life, knowing the kingdom's gonna fall, is literally needs a diaper. Right? Like, th- there's no shortage of details here, but, if you, if, but if, if you don't look closely, you don't get it. I mean, this is a scene to behold, right? But there's something else, and I got a question for you. It says in verse 4, As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Do you honestly think, church, that they literally praised the god of silver? I mean, it's not even platinum. No, just joking. Do you really think, though, that... Like, they're like, hey, speaker, you have an animating divine spirit in you. I worship you, speaker. Do you think that they cast, like, pillars of stone, and they're like, and that, my friends, is the epitome of divine incarnation. That stone. Or is there something else going on here? Gold, silver, precious metal, the symbol of opulence and wealth and excess, and stone and wood, the very, the, the very tangible, concrete, structural representation of infrastructure. You've got, you've got imperial infrastructure and ultimate wealth, and you're worshiping these symbols of the greatest achievement of humankind. But do you honestly think that in the gold, there's some little spirit that's like, thank you for your worship, or is there something else going on here? I lived in LA for a few years. I went to school in San Diego and L.A., stayed there for a little while, worked. Details aren't important, but there is one detail I want to share. I was driving on I-5 one time, and I wrote this down because at that time I was in this practice when I saw something that just caught my attention, write it down, put it in a notebook. And I wrote this down. Now, it's going to sound weird because I'm going to use it in my voice, but it's not Pastor Ryan. I am Botox. You can picture on the I-5 a... um, What are those things called? Thank you, billboard. And the billboard said, dear time, you're only a figment of my imagination. Love Botox. 
<laughs> like, that's pretty funny and like actually kind of brilliant marketing. But at the same time, you're kind of like squirmish. What's the, what's the point? The point is that literally in, the, in LA, this communicates that Botox can actually reverse the hand of time, or better yet, can make time just not even exist. Like time, pfft, just in my imagination. Because why? Because there are people and there are places where we literally worship usefulness. You see how that works? Nobody is taking a Botox shot, putting it on an altar and saying, dearest Botox, you are worthy of my devotion. No, not at all. And I don't want to pick on Botox. I'm just pointing out the fact that when you are obsessed to such an extent that you create an entirely new form of communicating that only subtly suggests the powerful truth that we high, our highest value is to look like an 18-year-old forever, you are actually worshiping youthfulness. You see that? What is it though? I don't, believe, I don't believe the stereotypical criticism of Seattle or New York or Chicago or Portland like it's a lawless, uh, you know, religionless, atheistic land going to hell in a handbasket. As a matter of fact, the most religious place I've ever lived was LA, by far. And I've lived in Nashville, the buckle of the Bible Belt. How is that, Pastor Ryan? It's simple. Just because you name something a God doesn't mean that's your only God. Living in LA, there are promises of ultimate meaning in your wealth, your appearance, your youthfulness. There's self-help to the extent that it becomes divine. And on and on and on and on. We even have icons that live there that you can touch and feel. Everything about Religion is present in LA. It's just not the religion you're familiar with. This, I think, is sort of what we're getting at. You have the whole numbing situation, right? Like, life is difficult, numb. But now you have this whole distractive measure, right? This whole, um, this whole blindness. A blindness, which by definition is simply not being able to see what's immediately in front of you. They don't even realize, I suggest, that they're worshiping the God of gold and silver, of wood and stone. That is the perception of Daniel that can see past all of the facade. Are we blind? Do we also have gods that we don't see because we don't name them as such? Why do I say this? Why am I talking about numbing and blinding? Why numbness, blindness? Why? Why coping and, and not being able to feel and reducing our responsiveness? And, 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 and why blindness and the inability to see the obvious things right in, front of our safe, right in front of our face, namely our own gods that we're unwilling and incapable of naming? Because numbing and blindness, you ready? Are the two enemies of resilience. Let me say it again. Numbing and blindness are the two enemies of resilience. And that's what we're after, right? This whole series is about discovering a resilient faith. How do we become people of resilience in Babylon? How do we glean wisdom about being resilient, which is the capacity to rise up after adversity and hardship? I'm here to tell you, numbing and blindness are the enemies of resilience. 
Let's jump forward to Luke, shall we? And I'm not going to read the story. I'm going to tell it to you. Most of you are familiar, so I'm going to retell it in an abbreviated form. And then I'm going to zero in on the heart of the sort of the conclusion of that story with one verse. It goes like this. There's three characters, one father, a son, and two sons. The younger son asks the father, can I have my inheritance early? Which, by the way, is kind of a rude way of saying, go ahead and die already. For which the father replies, okay, that sounds like a brilliant plan. I have no idea why. Whatever. The questioner in me just wants to ask questions. We don't get the answer, but he grants him what he wants. The young, you know the story. The young man goes to a foreign land, lives wildly, loses everything, hits rock bottom. He's even in the pit of the pit, literally with the swine, craving the schlup that they feed on. He gets up barely, probably unclothed, crawls back home. And on the horizon, coming through the field of wheats, his father, doesn't say this, I'm adding this, it's how I imagine, the father on the porch sees him a long way off. And it goes like this. While he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. Everyone say compassion. That was like three people. Everyone say compassion. I was like 27. No, that's okay. Compassion, not pity, not woe is he. I'm sorry, that's tough. He probably should have made better decisions when he was younger or something like that. No, no, no. Compassion is, literally means with suffering. As in like when somebody hurts, you feel it in your bones. Like when it's like a parent with a child, right? Like the child will never believe it, but when they fall and crack their head, it's like, Maybe not me because I was kind of a jerk for a dad, but most parents can actually feel that. But, and not a child and a, a child and a parent relationship, the difference between compassion and pity is this. Pity is lodged in your head as an idea that you extend. Compassion is log, lodged in your body because you can feel and sense and behold the hurt of another person. Compa- pity doesn't ask anything of you. Compassion compels you to act. So we see the father that's compelled. He literally jumps off the uh, balcony. Hopefully he didn't jump off the balcony. Jumps off the deck, runs to his son, tackles him as if he's a toddler again, wrestling in the living room, tackles him. And it says, and he kisses him all over, filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around and he kissed him. Literally they were taken back in time and he's holding this toddler and snuggling him all up. And then, and then, The older brother. Scholars generally agree that the corner of his lip was up. And he goes, you didn't act like that. And had spoken in a nasally voice. You didn't act like that with me. I've been slaving away all my life and you didn't do that with. I have so many more chores than all my friends, right? Every teenager's like... I have a few teenagers, but right, hands crossed, totally detached. What's the point? The point is that the second brother, the older brother, completely misses it. The, the dad's like, but you're with me constantly. You have access to all of these things. And the brother's over here completely disconnected, totally unmoved by the scene, and only thinking about himself, his well-being, his excess, his access to the family wealth, his inheritance and the parties that he's going to get. The brother is entirely numb and entirely blind. He is the embodiment of Belshazzar's banquet in a living person. I, this is not, it ain't going to move me. 
ain't gonna move me. I'm unmoved and I don't even see, my, I'm blind, my, my nose is so high, I'm blind, I can't even see in the mirror, I don't, I don't even notice my own failings and faults, blemishes and scars. One of my good friends does this amazing thing with this story, changed the way I read this story. He said to me, Ryan, one time, he said, Ryan, here's the thing about the prodigal son. It's not, well, here's two options of the people you can identify with. Like, you know, maybe you're a numb, detached, self-inflated, kind of egotistical, you know, a blind, self-indulgent individual. That was pretty harsh, wasn't it? But, you know, you, you know or you're maybe the, you know, the sinful, immature, wasteful, prodigal son. Or maybe there's like a third option too, but we just don't hear about it because Jesus only had so much time when he had this parable. Of course he didn't have a third option. No, no, no. It's not like maybe you're one or the other or a third one that's unmentioned. He says, actually, Ryan, you're either one or the other. Those are the only two options. You see that? You're either detached, numbing, and blind to your own selfishness, or, not B, C, D, or all the, or B, you have fallen on your face because you're broken by the consequences of your own decisions. You can either be completely ignorant of yourself or totally self-aware. You can either be numb to the realities of hardships in your own life, in your own home, in your own community, or you can be so overwhelmed with grief and hardship that it's hard to even bear the burden. There is no in-between. You want to live a resilient life, this is where it begins. It begins with being the younger brother, which is an accurate portrayal of yourself when you look in the mirror. Actually, I have totally and utterly blown it so many times. The alternative is the older brother. I've made a few small mistakes. When you look at it like that, it's like, I gotta pick between one of those two. Here's the thing. Catherine is doubting that you will pick. See that? Catherine says, I don't believe churches have any positive impact on the biggest, most pressing, challenging issues of our day because religious folks have their head in the clouds and are dreaming about another world. And they miss, they literally miss everything that's happening on the ground at their feet. You see that? She's like, literally, they don't have any good to contribute to our community. And here we have a chance to prove her wrong. Pick one of these because you're either numbing and you're blind or you're fully willing to embrace all of humanity, which means an admission of your own faults and an embracing of how hard it is to get up in the morning. That's it. One of my favorite people in the world, his name's Father Gregory Boyle. He started Homeboy Industries in LA. I, didn't, I don't know him personally, but he's literally one of my favorite people. He's the kind of people, and this doesn't happen very often, if you Google him, in 60 seconds, your life will be blessed. Like he's just profusely amazing, right? Like just such, has, does so much work. And he says he uh, works with recovering gangbangers in LA. I mean, you wanna talk about a saint, right? Like, and this, he has story upon story, and for some reason, one of them has always stood out to me, and it's a story about a kid named Miguel, a guy named Miguel who's in his mid-20s. And Miguel, 
lives in a, in a little apartment in LA, works on the graffiti team of this homeboy industries where they clean up graffiti and then they do murals and stuff with a handful of other homeboys, right? That, their words, not mine, right? And he, and he doesn't have a family that supports him or ever wants to interact with him. And Father Gregory, it was New Year's Day and M Miguel came in and said, hey G, happy New Year's. They call him G, Father Gregory. Happy New Year's, and, and Gregory said, my chest swelled, like my heart filled, that an ex-gangbanger would embrace me and say, Happy New Year's. And then it dawned on him, well, what did he do for Christmas? He has no family to go to. That's just our knee-jerk. We go see family, and we, we do our thing. But what if you're single, and you have nobody? And you've come out of a life of serious hardship and violence, and there's just nobody that's safe to go to? And so he asked him, hey, hey Miguel, what'd you, do, what'd you do for Christmas? And Miguel said, Miguel said, oh, I, I invited a few, I invited a few, few of the homies over and we, we celebrated. And, and Gregory's like, really, you did? And, and, and Miguel says, yeah, five, five homies and I, we, we cooked a turkey. And Father Gregory, or G, says, I, I didn't know you cooked a turkey or you knew how to cook a turkey. He said, oh yeah, we cooked a turkey. It tasted proper. And, Miguel, and Father Gregory's like, uh, how did you do that? And, and Miguel says, oh, we get it ghetto style. Right? We, <laughs> we took a gang of butter, melted it on top, a little salt and pepper and some limones. Then we sat back, we put it in the oven, we watched the turkey cook. And Gregory says, what else did you eat? And Miguel goes, nothing, just a turkey. By the way, side note, that's not a well-rounded meal, but it doesn't matter, right? So, and Gregory just could not believe the image in a small, undersized kitchen in an undersized stove with a full-size turkey. Anybody that's cooked a turkey knows how long that takes. Five or six ex-gang, rival gang members that used to want to shoot each other, sitting there for three hours watching a turkey get cooked proper. And he says, I don't believe Jesus is in heaven losing sleep because we make that kind of thing uh, too holy. He says, I think Jesus might be losing sleep because we make that kind of thing not normal enough. And I can't think of anybody that more extremely embodies the reality of the younger son than an ex-gangmanger who was strung out on drugs that's found sobriety, a nonviolent way to exist in this world, and invite his enemies around to eat proper turkey with limones on them. I mean, is that not the most beautiful, this world, on the ground picture of, of holiness that you could possibly think of? It is. It is. But here's the thing about Miguel. All he does is he reminds us where resilience begins. I'm guessing there's not a lot of ex-gangbangers in here. Maybe there are. Prove me wrong. Meet me outside afterwards. Kindly meet me afterwards, right? But one of us, some of us, most of us are in here, and there is an inner Miguel that has to come to grips with being the younger son, unattached. But resilience begins first with an admission of what you're using to numb and what you're unwilling to see that's right in front of your eyes as the things you truly worship. Chapter five continues. We're just gonna touch down so nobody throws anything at me and start up in verse 16. You're, this, is, this is so cool. 
Now I have heard, now this is, the, this is Belshazzar writing on the wall, things are going terribly. He's drunk, he's not thinking clearly. Thing, it's just crumbling in real time here. And he knows Daniel's got this reputation of being able to interpret dreams and such. Now I have heard that you are able to, uh, you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. It's a pretty good promotion. Then Daniel answered the king. Now get this. He's being offered everything. Literally everything LA can promise he's being offered in one promotion. This very moment, do this, and it's all yours. Literally the women, the gold, everything. Not one, but like three Teslas, okay, all at once. And he says, listen to this. You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. He says, ah, eh. I'll, I mean, I'll interpret it for you, but eh. And therein encapsulates what it looks like when you know you're on the road to a resilient faith. All of the numbing and blinding opportunities just lose their appeal. 